Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for another show. Now, that's presumptuous. Maybe this is your first time. And because that may be the case, uh, we introduce ourselves each show, assuming that there may be some folks out there who find that helpful. So I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. And I've written some books. I've been a uh, real commercial real estate investor. I've been a professor of philosophy. I've done some other things too, but that that's enough to, about me. So Glenn, why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and then Tom, and then I've got a special announcement to make, and then I'll kick it back to you, Tom, because it's your show. All right. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I'm a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and I'm a retired history professor. And I am sitting here in the middle of the thunderstorm right now. So if you hear background noise, that's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> All right. Thunderstorms in the Midwest, they never happen. They never happen. <laughs> All right, Tom. All right, I'm Tom Price. I am a professor and teacher, an adjunct professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary of Christian Thought, teaching uh, systematic theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy, and other things. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, the, the, the special announcement has to do with our new Patreon page. So we have a Patreon page that we're going to tell you more about at the end of the show, but we want to folks to know about it because it's going to be exciting. There are going to be some things that we do through the Patreon page that are like perks and so forth. That's what you do with Patreon. And uh, we'll fill you in a little more at the end. But there is a link in the show notes to the Patreon page. It, it will be live by the time this show uh, is posted, and we'd like you to go and visit it and see if it might be of interest to you. Anyway, uh, let's kick it over to you, Tom, and let's get into the subject of the day. I think we're talking about something from Touchstone Magazine again. Yes, a Touchstone article uh, uh, a little while back, um, but uh, definitely up to date in terms of its content. But uh, before I get in it, the kind of topic itself is we could call um, being a Christian wayfarer in between the times. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, and I'm going to try to unpack some of the layers to this. I think a lot of times as a theology instructor, I notice people often wrestle with um, how to understand exactly how we layer being a people of the kingdom with the fact that the world in its current state has not been translated into the kingdom of light, and therefore we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world, and yet there are aspects of the world that are good things, and there are aspects of it that are corrupted by uh, sin and death, and then there are, there's the call to bring all things, creaturely things, into conformity to Christ. So there's a lot of tension going on um, with those different, different uh, relationships uh, of this unique reality. Um, but then there's also the current situation where we have a lot of just thick nihilism in, in our culture and in the world today, um, just with the recent... Uh, you know, ter issue, you know, issues going in relationship of the turning of the the abortion issue back to states. We have I've seen an escalated level of just barbaric conversation to where the self-centered, nihilistic, ego-driven um, notions of the self that are the byproduct of certain strands of the modern world have become so. Uh, direct and uh, unfiltered um, to the point where we can really see why we are indwelling something you could go 
you could call, as others have, a culture of death. Um, that there is no meaning other than the the meaning I um, impute to something, um, or that I choose to give to something, and that uh, if not even a human being or a human life or even our embodied natures have no meaning besides that. Um, and then there is the flip side, the despair that often goes when people come up against the wall um, of the reality, the consequences of the reality of that vision. I just saw, I think it was out of Canada, a young boy wrestling with some health issues signed up to, to for euthanasia. Um, this notion that because there's going to be struggling and suffering and there are going to be things in life, um, that life has no meaning, therefore, no purpose, um, or we, we see it all around us that if we're not affirmed in our self-chosen identity, somehow we are, we are being, um, we're not fully human and that we don't have dignity and a purpose as image bearers because we can't exercise a certain expression of how we see ourselves. So we're in a very dark moment. Um, and, and I think one of the things that really made this article um, significant is because I see the church getting sucked into it. <laughs> um, I see the, the weakness of, I, I would say, the evangelical church in particular. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons for this is because it has basically tried to, to um, reframe the gospel within a setting that isn't biblical. <laughs> Um, it's a setting, as we'll see in a few minutes, that is actually what the scriptures tell us to reject. What they've done is confused our being in the world as a created order with being in the present moment, which is actually an order of darkness. And because of that, the gospel has been reframed away from the vision of being united to God and being being grounded in in God and God's uh, holiness and, and, and love and joy to turning to a this world's kind of focus. But I'm, gonna, I'm going to qualify that because what I don't mean is this world in the terms of the goodness of the created order being restored to heaven, but I mean it in terms of its fallenness. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I think there, there are, in my experience, two ways this gets expressed. One is in a kind of... Uh, I guess, uh, crude market driven, uh, outlook where you have people who more or less commiserate or commiserate or worry about what will the neighbors think or what will people think about us if we say something that offends them or is just forthright and, uh, true, but difficult for them to accept. So the idea is that, well, let's just kind of mute this and downplay it and then maybe sneak it in later. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is, is they never sneak it in. I mean, I, I would be a little more, uh, I guess, uh, amenable to the to the uh, to the approach if it ever got brought up ever. <laughs> you and, know, but, yeah. Go but ahead. yeah. Yeah. What, but and the, the, the other expression is a more sophisticated kind of uh, actually, I think, Kyperian perver a perversion of Kyperianism which uh, is the idea that, well, you know, God is uh, uh, at work, you know, in the present age and almost like the zeitgeist is uh, a reflection of God's providence. And so consequently, we need, kind of need to get with the program, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. And there's a downplaying of transcendence. There's a downplaying of, uh, you know, uh, 
objective reality. Uh, there's a downplaying of the law. It's a weird thing, I've, I, but I've seen it in and encountered it in progressive uh, reformed circles that that used to be considered like a contradiction in terms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> progressive reformed. Yeah, but we, we 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 see it more and more, and it's creepy. It's a really creepy bunch of people we're talking about. But anyway, yeah. those, those are my my thoughts. Where I see this most commonly is in the idea that we have to be very careful what we say and what we do for fear of, quote, hurting our witness, which in practice means we've got to look and say just what our neighbors think. Because if we ever challenge them on anything, they are so likely to be offended by what we say that it will discredit Christianity yeah. or something like that. So the, the, this idea of hurting our witness, there, there, there's an element of truth there. I mean, it is possible to hurt our witness by our behavior. But I think that gets exaggerated to such a degree that it basically says, hold your head down and conform to the world. And then when they give you permission, talk to them about Christ. And that's not what it is. Uh, or another form of it is an overemphasis on winsomeness, which generally means not saying anything that they might find offensive, including, for example, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that includes <laughs> you and me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and and uh, and you know, I, and I think one of the other areas I, I, I am increasingly seeing it, especially as a younger generation, is on the one hand talking, "Oh, I love God, I have a personal relationship," but I'm also now here to not only say I'm an ally, but I practice given lifestyles, and I'm celebrating pride or pro-choice, all these things that 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 would have been incongruous <laughs> um, at a, in a in a deeper um, classic vision sense, and in just a a, a clear cut biblical sense that that there is a there is a form to our pilgrim life as people of eternity that has a shape now which distinguishes us but also makes us actually people of the real hope and that's a hope of being liberated the right way not the wrong way and so the article just so that i don't forget <laughs> is uh by uh a david elliott um, he wrote it. It's, I do not have the actual um, issue date because it didn't somehow print, but I will. We'll, we can post that the the, the uh, actual Touchstone um, issue it was in. I think it's a couple years old. Um, and he is uh, he, he studies. Um, he may be finished now. I don't know, but he's at the University of Notre Dame. He did his dissertation, or is doing it on virtue ethics. And um, but he wrote this article called "Passing Through the Sirens." The Trials of a Christian Wayfarer in the World. And it's, uh, he, he really uh, highlights, I think, some, some, some important issues that are worth really unpacking and helping us engage our time with, I, I think, uh, something that is central to Christian hope. And I think really, I, noted, I noticed him writing somewhere else that a lot of times our form of apologetic, it has been really good on the answering questions side and the addressing the intellectual issues and sometimes even the emotive side. 
Um, but it really has done a lousy job engaging the fact that you either have downright indifference. So, okay, it's logical or it makes sense. Who cares? To it's there's a downright anger and bitterness towards it because it seems to actually be a form of oppression because people have bought into a different notion of liberation and what it means to be a human. Um, something that will use all the language, the capital, the moral capital of the Christian vision, but rip it from its its uh, proper theological sense uh, center. And actually, in the long run, it's really a deep form of, of enslavement and will lead to despair and barbarism. Um, but... Um, but it doesn't look like it on the surface. So his article is really engaging this. Glenn, you were going to say something? Yeah, two things. Uh, first of all, the uh, he's probably done with his doctorate. The article dates to 2012. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so, we hope so anyway. I've known yeah, guys who've taken a real I, long yeah. time. I mean, it took me <laughs> a long time. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, yeah, one of the things I noticed when I was teaching history of Christianity um, at a state school, uh, I would always just, uh, as a preface, I would always start off by telling the students, okay, what you need, you know, every faculty member has their biases and the, the, you know, their worldview. And what you need to understand as I'm, I'm approaching history of Christianity, I'm doing this from the perspective of someone who believes that historical Christianity is objectively true. You don't have to believe this. I'm not going to grade you on whether you believe it or not, but you should know that's where I'm coming from. I then assigned them the Gospels of Luke and John as their first assignment for the next day. Originally, it was Luke, then I added John too. And sooner or later, as we discussed this, um, I talked about the resurrection. And I would give a rather basic apologetic for why believing in the resurrection makes sense with the justification that, you know, you don't necessarily need to believe this, uh, but you need to know that it's not irrational to believe it. <laughs> and so I would, go, I would go through, basically the question is what happened to the body? And I would go through all of the various options and then point out that if their worldview allowed for what I called paranormal events <laughs> uh, rather than miracles, then we've got one other option and that's that Jesus rose from the dead. Given that my worldview allows for that, and given the, none of the other choices make sense, that's the one that it seems to me clearly makes the best sense. Now, if you don't accept that idea, you'll have to decide on which of the other improbable explanations makes the most sense to you. But, you know, so uh, yeah, secular university, you got to be careful how you say these things. <laughs> um, but what I what, what sort of struck me afterwards, after I've, you know, now that I'm no longer teaching and I have some time to reflect on this, is I think a lot of the students walked out of the classroom saying, yeah, that makes sense. And then didn't get the fact that if Jesus rose from the dead, it's got implications for their life. There was, yeah. I think there was a complete disconnect yeah. between the apologetic and the implications for what it meant for them. Yeah, yeah, that's something worth digging into a bit. I think that we live in a time where people have a hard time making connections, generally speaking, just even at a logical level. 
But one of the things, you know, we're, we're getting at is the metaphysics of the, res- the resurrection and its implications or the ontology of the, re- of the resurrection and its implications. So, uh, you know, one of the things that Hans Borsma said here recently that I thought was really profound is that um, we live in a time in which uh, the notion that there is a human nature has been called into question and is even dismissed by many intellectuals. Yeah. Can a, can a Christian do that? And his, his, his argument was, no, if you believe that Christ is fully human, that means that there must be a human nature (laughs) (laughs) by definition. So, uh, and then that human nature is what we are connected with, uh, through, uh, the incarnation and, uh, by implication, the resurrection. In other words, this is all very relevant to us. Uh, something is being said, not just about Christ, but about human beings as a class. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Resurrected unto life or unto death. So this is a, this is something that's connecting, you know, one of the things too, I think we ought to get to is the title of the article. And I know maybe (laughs) you're, you're planning to get to that, but it's, it's a reference to something from the Odyssey. And uh, so it's because some some of our folks who who may may not have any knowledge about that, we ought to explain that. But anyway, uh, back to you, Tom. Yeah, yeah, the passing through the sirens. And maybe you want to talk about the part of the Odyssey, but it's also something that Nietzsche brings up a little bit later, what he calls the song sirens, right, of the bird catcher. Is he criticized Christianity for basically being a false form of comfort, right, an illegitimate form of liberation. And what it was is sort of like um, the, the song sirens of the bird catcher that were sweet and would draw you in but in the end, the bird would catch you. You'd be oppressed, right? And then you would take soft comfort in those sirens, those song sirens. That was your that was your trade off for a cheaper form of, of good. Um, do you want to any? Of you want to take the, uh, the the reference to the Odyssey? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll grab that one. So um, Odysseus is on his way home, and he gets warned about the island of the sirens and uh, the. Sirens were a group of sea nymphs who sang so beautifully that they, they well, they enchanted uh, yeah. people's minds and they would steer the ships to the, to, to the song and the ship would be destroyed on the rocks and everybody would die. Yeah. Now, Odysseus decided he wanted to hear the song of the sirens. So he plugged all of his men's ears with wax, told them under no circumstances should they let him go, and he, they tied him to the mast so that he couldn't get away, but he could hear the song. They couldn't, and yeah. this way they could sail past the sirens safely. Yeah, yeah. My, pr- probably my favorite uh, rendition of this episode is from "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" Yeah, the- <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> the sirens. <laughs> There's three three women washing clothes down in the stream, and uh, they seduce our heroes. <laughs> anyway, and so and so this plays. I mean, I think it plays beautifully into the, what he's going to discuss, and especially the way in which, um, as Christian pilgrims in the world, there are these enchanted songs that are being sung to us. Um, that could be goods in themselves, but when they become our homeland, if you will, if we we kind of latch onto them the wrong way. They, they become intense obstacles and oftentimes ones that bring along with it destructive uh, um, 
consequences. So let me back up a little bit. And um, what he, uh, he starts the article. Oh, were you going to say something? Just one quick note. He makes a few other references to the Odyssey in here. Yeah. And it is just for our listeners, it is genuinely worthwhile going through the Odyssey because every episode in it is a can be seen as sort of an allegory of the kinds of challenges we face in our lives. Now, this is one of the great things about classic literature. It can do this kind of thing for you. So he references the Lotus Eaters here. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you could talk about Skill and, and Charybdis. We can talk yeah. about uh, Circe, yeah. um, Calypso, all of these things. All of them are obstacles that can be allegories for the kinds of things we face in our life. So yes. I just want to yeah. throw that one in. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a great connection, and I'll get to this, um, where he, he really taught, he had, I think he does a great way of showing how our life of as pilgrims, if you will, in the right sense of the word, um, is can be connected to, to that whole classical uh, longing that is built in adventure proper notion of adventure. And I think, I think he's able to get that, the, the proper sense of journeying. But one of the things he talks about at the start is kind of the things that Christians are warned against early up, the three sources of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he kind of notes how the, the flesh and the devil make sense, but this whole notion of the world, why such intense cautionary tones? And so he, he packs, you know, he unpacks what he calls the villain of the piece, um, and he talks about how the New Testament speaks oftentimes terrible about something that trans we translate as the world. Um, and he often talks about it in language that, that of contrast as well, that it's the Jerusalem from here. We are part of the Jerusalem above. Um, love not the world, nor the things of the world, nor the lusts, you know, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Um, because if you love these things, the love of the Father isn't in you. Um, but then on the other hand, you have this notion in Scripture that says, you know, for God so loves the world. So so what is going on? Well, he kind of unpacks the, the different sense, senses of world um, that Scripture um, holds to. And he, he kind of sums it up in three senses of the world. Um, the one the one aspect of the world is what we would think of as the whole created order, the universe, and this is what he would consider in the in scriptures a good thing. It's created good, and this is what the God so loves: um, the created harmonious order, the gift, the good gift. Um, and then there's a kind of more general notion of the world that just happens to be the kind of the people of the world, if you will, or world in that sense of those whom God comes to save, right? Um, go and to preach, you know, the gospel to all nations, the whole world. Um, Matthew 24, 12. But the third term, um, aeon or A-I-O-N, um, this has to, this is a word that means epic, period, or age. And what he talks about here is that scripture, when it's railing against the world, is typically railing against this present aeon or ion, um, Matthew 12, 32, the one which fell into sin. The one, if you will, that is kind of at war with the created order and cosmos. Um, that is, it, although it has all of the stirrings towards of desire made for eternity and union with God, has has brought has 
oriented those towards the creaturely rather than the eternal and therefore brings in enslavement, idolatry, oppression, pain, sin, death, hell, the grave. This, this is what um, this present age um, refers to in Scripture when it's condemned. And so this is its dominant images are Babylon, Babel, corruption, confusion. Um, it's distinct from the new and everlasting world to come, Matthew twelve thirty two, in which God's kingdom becomes established undisputedly over all things. And so I don't want to get into the whole relationship, you know, into the the whole millennial issue here. I want to focus more on just. What does it mean to be to be a Christian of the kingdom of God's rule in the present order of things um, from the angle of of how how we we are to be a hopeful people, um, not those that are knocked off course the way people that are only from this present um, this present order. Um, And so. uh, so that kind of int- introduces the sense of the world that is being used here, um, and this is the one that, of course, is under under the con- you know the influence of evil and Satan. I mean, Jesus himself would would say that um, Satan, the ruler of this world, and again, I understand the things that change with the cross, but I'm just talking about that domain that is that is passing away and dissolving, but it hasn't fully dissolved yet. That's what we're talking about here. And so this is where the issue of, of, of the Christian as homo viator, um, as the person on the way, the early church noted were called the people of the way. They were on a journey. They're wayfarers. And what this meant is, is they were not, they were in the world in its present conflicts, but they aren't of it. They are a people and a new people that are not, they have been liberated and translated from the dominance and the loyalty uh, and loyalty to the fallen dissolving world. And they have become partakers of the resurrection, um, the, the, it, which is another way of putting the, the heavenly. Um, they are partakers of the heavenly. Chris? Yeah, I think a couple of things come to mind here that I imagine some of our listeners while at uh, one moment completely agreeing with what you just said, Tom, maybe raising in their own minds some, some objections or questions. Sometimes people who have used the language of wayfaring, sojourning, pilgrim, yeah. uh, have used this as a kind of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, justification for not engaging with even uh, uh, addressing the problems of the world. Uh, yeah. Uh, or maybe even calling for its utter destruction. You know, yeah, <laughs> one, yeah. you know one of the things that, you know, when we, when we think about uh, apocalyptic language in scripture, I mean, it's, it's, you know, powerful and it uh, is, you know, promises to put, to put evil to an end. But I think that some people with almost a kind of glee embrace the concept that it's just a total obliteration rather than a deliverance that we're talking yes. about with that kind of language. Yeah. And so they'll, they'll say, what does it matter? Uh, you know, yeah. why should we build churches that will last for centuries? Why should we yeah. care about the political moment and the mm-hmm. trends in the academic world? All of that stuff's just going to burn. Um, yeah. You know, so why why do we why do we care about that kind of stuff? So I, I think that's that's one thing, and I think that 
there's also a tendency um, for for folks to lose sight of the fact that Christ is on the throne and that, yes, he refers to Satan as the prince you know, of this world, the ruler of this world. But the world that we're talking about here is not the world that God has made or what will be redeemed, but this present age. That's right. That's right. And so he is under judgment. Yes. So uh, it's not as though providence has been abrogated that's <laughs> or that's suspended. Right. That's right. <laughs> no. So anyway, just a couple of thoughts. Well, that's right. I mean, I think the other way of putting it, it's a dissolving reality, but it still impacts us as those moving towards our perfection in in Christ, that which is our 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 ultimate. Fulfill, the f- ultimate fulfillment of what we're created to be. And I think the other thing is, is that, that I think you're right. I think what happens is people get nervous and, and, and use a dualism that, that um, if you make the eternal and the heavenly and God kind of the ultimate aim, then that means you have to get rid of the creaturely. And that, that is working, I think, again, it's not working with classic Christianity's understanding of God. Um, it's seeing God as a competitor to the creation. God is not a competitor with the creation. Where the opposition is, is with the, the fallen world <laughs> and God. <laughs> That's where the conflict is. So it isn't a dualism between this worldly and, and otherworldly. It's the way in which the creaturely is brought to um, it, its... its resilient, vital form in relation to, to its ultimate uh, source of everything that it is, God. It's that we now sit at the right hand of God with Christ, who, who's, who we are, where our image is. Um, and, and so we're right here right now, but we're also in the heavens with Christ right now. There isn't an opposition there. <laughs> I know it's very hard for us to imagine it, but there isn't, there isn't an opposition. Um, and so, Glenn, you were going to... Um, this motif of pilgrimage shows up over and over again in Scripture. Pilgrimage, yeah. exile, all of these kinds of things. And to get at Chris's point, the earliest, uh, almost prototype for this is Abraham. Yeah. You know, Abraham comes from a very sophisticated urban environment. God tells him to leave it. You're going to become a nomad. You're going to become a wanderer. Uh, yeah. Go where I'm. Go where I tell you to go. Yeah. So he's not even sure where that is. And when he gets to the promised land, the only land that he owns is his wife's grave. Now think about that. Yeah. But in the call of Abraham, he's called to be a pilgrim. He's called to be this the, uh, the uh, viator, uh, homo yeah. viator. Yeah. But the end of the call is all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So the pilgrimage has as its end, its purpose, its goal, the blessing of all the nations. So you can't draw a distinction, the, the kind of thing that Chris is saying, the problem that with, with yeah. a lot of uses of sojourner or pilgrimage language, you can't draw a distinction between homo viator and living a, an active life in this world, seeking to carry out the blessings that God has promised to the world through Abraham. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's, I, I think one of the, 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 you know, the kind of errors that go on, and in, in, I know in, in theology talk, is sometimes you'll have something we often call eschatological naturalism. Um, and that's one that basically God is an instrument for bringing about a peaceful, blessed order. So that God is instrumental and not central. Um, and this is this is a temptation because we get so wrapped up. But this is a temptation of the social justice side as much as it is the kind of, um, you know, human flourishing side. Um, on the on the flip side, you know, is the old you are so, you know, so focused on, you know, things transcendent that you're you're of no earthly use. And again, I think both of those are are are, are erroneous divides that are not the biblical picture. Because um, here is someone like St. Paul, who is just as much concerned, uh, first and foremost, of, of, of that he is obedient to Christ um, and, and the Father's will, seeking first the kingdom and the wealth of God's righteousness, um, and recognizing that we are to take care of and those around us and be responsible for those creaturely goods um, and so, and we're about building something that is going to last forever. So the work we do now, the bringing all things into Christ is, is building on the chief cornerstone Christ. Um, so, so I think this is why this is, I think, very important. Um, and, and he even mentions a little later how, how C.S. Lewis will mention how, you know, all of those things about our life that we, we you know, hold deal. He said, maybe even good old England will have its perfected form. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's significant to him. He's, he's English in its whole history. So these things aren't incidental, but they aren't, they aren't the central thing. It's that, that we get to be in union with the eternal God whose image we bear. And the whole of creation, therefore, flourishes itself when we, the children, sons and daughters of God, are oriented towards the creator the right way as, as priests of creation. Um, and so this is what it means, though, to be be this in in between times where there is struggle, there is opposition, but it isn't defeating. Right. It's the means through which we're being perfected. We're developing the virtues that bring stability and vitality to to uh, our lives, the lives of those who remain after us, but ultimately readying us for the kingdom and and. Um, and so one of the things he talks about, he goes back to how big it was also in the medieval period where that term, the Christian pilgrim, um, you know, uh, the wayfarer really came came into to its own. And he talks about the way that we're in the world, not of the world. And that's just talking about our grounding and our center. Right. And he talks about that, that uh, that the convert is no long, longer uh, homo error. Right. A lost wanderer in darkness, in sin, under that satanic delusion, no longer in blindness, but now a pilgrim, a wayfarer, one who sees the light and it follows that light through the places that it shines through um, in the gospel and, and in scripture. And so th then there's this journeying adventure, what he talks about. And this is the this is us pushing us towards our perfection and the bringing of all things into the their elevated state in relationship to heaven to god their their eternal source um and so that's kind of what's going on there but the, he talks about the way in which this has a a concrete shape and form in this life and this is what virtues are all about developing a certain kinds of of habits um there's habits of grace and just our natural gifts 
that we cultivate. That's what discipleship is. You're cultivating these things so that they be they become rooted in us in a way that we're bring, bringing all of ourselves into subjection to Christ, right? And so that's what the these do. So there is a text he'll use in a later book, uh, the, the author, where he talks about the biblical uh, call to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And he talks about how being a happy people, a, a joyous people as pilgrims, even a suffering world, how even when you go through persecution, you count it all joy. So there is this habit of practicing rejoicing and thankfulness and gratitude, because when that habit is not being cultivated, we leave a vacuum. And guess what fills it? The vices, right? Um, one of which is despair. And this is what I think we tend to see with a lot of these Christians that are jumping off board and running with the trends today because it's, it's become trying and challenging, so it therefore doesn't get, get pursued much deeper. And so this is where the rest of the article goes, the wayfarer's expectations. And he looks at these different sirens in the world that are almost like these beautiful uh, sounds that come through and try to tempt us and then he talks about the way the church is to counter it with the actual virtue that replaces those vice. And he says there are good things in the world, these little, he calls them inns, these little stations on the way. We would call them pubs, right? <laughs> and these little pubs are great for, for still celebrating the goods of creation in a, in a responsible way, but they become bad when we latch on to them, as Augustine would say, when our loves start to, to, see, to love them the way different than the kind of objects they are. And so when we do that, therefore, we become enslaved to them. We become, you know, think of any kind of drug addict, right? They try this thing and it gives them such a feeling that they start to relate to it the next time in a way with the improper affection and love for it and desire for it um, to where they're given over for it. And so these are the things he calls sirens of the world, and, uh, and he talks one of the siren of wealth, where it's not bad to have wealth, but it's bad to, for wealth to have you. But he sort of talks about the way in which the siren says, cursed are the poor, for theirs is not the kingdom of the world. But the person on the way um, who is waylaid by mammon is told to fight back through almsgiving, right? So there's your virtue that gets, gets their almsgiving, a charitableness the practices of charity that that help cultivate you to be the kind of self-giving love that Christ has, and it creates something that prevents the void jumping in and greed filling that. And I think the one you mentioned earlier was this notion of kind of persecution. Um, this the, the this kind of the church fathers would talk about oftentimes that the Roman soldiers carrying off Christians to lions was kind of a a symbol to scare Christians to basically shut up. Um, and, and, and he talks about the way we have soft persecution today that tries to prod the wayfarer off the road by making them afraid to witness out of season and talks about something like, you know, when you'll end up losing your job or you'll get, you know, kind of ridiculed for taking a hard stand for Christ, the kind of cancel culture we see. And he, he kind of shows the difference between the wayfarer versus the one tempted to to accommodate and all to avoid um, persecution. Uh, Chris? Yeah, this has gotten me thinking a little bit about um, the f situation we find ourselves in in which um, 
virtue in the in the sense that a, a, a set of cultivated um, behaviors or an outlook that is the result of of really hard work and God's grace in helping us to develop these things, this kind of second nature, uh, is up against uh, some real, I guess, headwinds, not just in the world, but even in the church. Um, yeah. So like one of the headwinds that you, you, you know, it comes to mind for me is uh, we've talked about this ad nauseum, um, kind of the vision of the natural that we owe to Rousseau, uh, this kind of spontaneous, uh, uh, kind of almost thoughtless uh, way of sort of uh, thinking about what's natural. So what's, what's natural is the things that is the thing that, that you don't uh, cultivate or it just happens. Mm-hmm. And that's in the, and in a world w- in which we live, that's your true self. So yeah. you don't really know yourself all that well, it's, but you do know there are certain stirrings uh, in mm-hmm. yourself and that you have to, uh, identify with those stirrings that's that's because that's the true you that's the natural you and any any effort to uh i guess curb or direct or anything like that that's socially constructed you know that's something that's oppressive that's something that is keeping you from being the real you and so there's that and that you know it's just nuts i mean probably Perhaps the best way to demonstrate how nutty it is is just sort of let it play itself out. And when it when ends up happening, of course, is people uh, find themselves uh, mutilated and um, childless, and it just it just leads to all it just leads to death. And we're yeah. seeing that sort of play out right before our eyes in, yeah. in our society right now. We're I, I think twenty years from now there are going to be so many class action lawsuits against drug companies and just. Uh, yeah you know, medical authorities, it's just going to be unbelievable. We're going to see people who were transitioned when they were five years old, suing their parents for not intervening. I I think that's going to happen. But in the church, there's a, there's a kind of a a corresponding dynamic where grace is effortless. It's, it's grace is understood as being sort of not working at all ever. Uh, And, you know, even in sanctification, it's just you're just carried along by the by the breeze, I guess, the wind of the spirit. Yeah. Uh, or maybe a, you don't even think about exercising any effort because that would be a works righteousness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> even in, even in the service of your sanctification. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just crazy. It's insane. But we have the yeah. same kind of thing in Christianese that we deal with. Yes, yeah. Chris. It's worth noting that. Um, a heresy hunter reading Slaying Leviathan was going through it, obviously, given what he ended up complaining about, uh, he was going through it, obviously, to find some reason why he could dismiss me, because after all, I was published by the Evil Canon Press. (laughs) And um, what he hit on is I said that Reformed Christians believed that we were justified by faith but that faith inevitably resulted in good works. And because of that, I'm a heretic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a hyper grace thing. You're right. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it, it, again, this, this, comes, this comes from voluntarism. This, comes, this is an, a voluntaristic reading of the Reformed faith. This is what the early 
classical reformers tried to avoid by holding classical view of God in place. They wrestled with it because nominalism had made its inroads so deep by that point. And, and yeah, this notion that that for God, for it to be grace, somehow you have to completely be eradicated rather than actualized to enact your creatureliness towards its perfecting ends. I, I, I don't... There, there is they. The only way they can have a problem with law and grace is when they're in a competitive relation. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That isn't that isn't what what Christ does because nothing, none of our actions have any source except for the grace of God. <laughs> That's their source. They're not in competition with it. They're actualized by it. What we do is we go along with the actualization rather than resist it and and so yeah it's it's uh but see that's why you know i think there it's it's high time for a retrieval for anyone who cares and wants to get through um the these dark despairing times the right way we need to retrieve a lot of this and i, I think these are kind of good starts his other one though this is this is one we we already know the one with power right we're seeing it all around us but um and, he, it, and that's a good one when you talk about the big evangelicals if you will and their desire to to basically, um, you know, be aligned with with the powerful. But the other one is the Siren of the Times. And he writes, omnipresent and perhaps the most representative of the sirens. The one sings, this one sings a lullaby of intellectual and spiritual sloth, telling the wayfarer that reality is reducible to the standards of the worldview of their own society. The goal is to turn him into a cipher by making him define reality wholly through the spirit of the age with all its ideologies, propaganda, fashionable opinions, through which the devil primarily exercises his role as the deceiver of the whole world. So, I mean, we're talking a, a, a great, uh, a great n- uh, reminder of, I think, one of the big temptations here. And I think you mentioned the, the way it gets distorted as a, as a form of kind of Kuiperism or uh, Kuiperianism or, or some of these other strands. Um, and he goes, he goes uh, kind of the, the, the point of reflection is the unexamined life is, is not worth living, <laughs> is their, their motto, right? Um, this siren follows the wayfarer on the road at all times, and he fights her by reminding her of this motto, be not conformed to the world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this, this kind of brings back to the issue that the text in Colossians, where we talk about, you know, what this journeying as a Christian in between times looks like. And it's really, um, Chris has hit on a few weeks ago, when you talk about the resurrection and what has been inaugurated with that for us, um, we have been translated into um, this through, you know, through faith and in our baptism, right? We're buried, put to death of the old, and we're born anew into this kingdom um, under this rule and reign. This kingdom and this rule and reign, which is our true identity, that's why we were given baptism names classically in the classical church, right, as a new creation, um, behold, the old is passing away. We now embody forth our creatureliness increasingly the way it's supposed to be and towards its fulfillment. And this is why Colossians says what? Christ now is your true identity. You are now to be heavenly minded where he is sitting in the heavens, ruling over all you, one of his priests, right? But the next thing is, therefore, this is what you do. You put off these things that belong to the old order 
and you cultivate these things that belong to the new, right? And of course, these things are also, when we're, in, when we're oriented towards who we truly are, as people of the kingdom of light, this, of course, the fruit is the fruit of the spirit. And so this is, this is the cultivation of the ground that allows that fruit to grow and, 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 and flourish versus putting obstacles in its way by gravitating towards the lust, you know, of, in things of the, of the old world. And so this is kind of what he will talk about here. This becomes a, a struggle that oftentimes we're tempted to kind of say, you know what, it's too rough. Let's just have a kind of antinomian kind of Christianity, or it's too rough wrestling with my own lust. So why don't I just give in, embrace the spirit of the age and say, well, Christ loves everyone, gave me this identity as someone who happens to live a lifestyle that everywhere in scripture condemns, but because God is love and love is love, therefore I don't need to struggle against it. And he talks about the way that Christian hope is the struggle is worth it and the giving in isn't worth it. And I think that's really the, you know, important take. Uh, Glenn? Yeah, one of the things that um, Ken Boa pointed out to me at one point, he said, you know, good habits you have to work to maintain, (laughs) bad habits you don't. (laughs) And if you don't work to maintain your good habits, your bad habits will assert themselves. You know, and this this is sort of the point that, that the the continuing presence of of sin, not sins plural, sin as a principle uh, in our life, the continuing effects of the fall, even after redemption, mean that we have an inevitable entropy, an inevitable tendency to fall back into these things. Hmm. And what we're called to do is the opposite. Yeah. But the opposite requires work. It requires persistent, consistent effort to progress in the virtues. If you look at Second uh, Peter, he talks about make every effort to add to your faith knowledge and so on, this long list. And he ends it with, because if these things are yours and increasing, mm-hmm. they will keep you from being unfruitful. Yes. So we, but you have to make every effort to do it. Yeah, I yeah. think part, I think related to that, Glenn, is is uh, kind of a timeline or a sense of the past. One of the problems that we face today is lots of people don't know what happened 20 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. And there is also a sense in which many of the many of the great minds in antiquity, those uh, sages, had learned some lessons by watching you know, things played themselves out. So there are many things today that people are celebrating uh, and take pride in, if you get my drift, which yeah. even um, pagans in the past condemned. What, now, yeah. why did they condemn them? They, they had enough light just through nature, through God's common grace as, it's, as, as it works its way out in nature, to know how the stories end. If you give yourself over to this, this stuff, this is how it ends. And so yeah. they, they, they had records. <laughs> they saw it happen in, in cities and in civilizations, yeah. and they re- remind themselves of that. Today, it's almost a virtue, weirdly, to not have a memory, to not even know your own past, let alone the past of, your, of you know, people in the past, 
And so people are just incredibly naive. I mean, you look at the stuff that people uh, are celebrating in Pride Month, taking pride in. It's insane because they just don't know anything about anything. And in, interestingly, I, I uh, just make this quick point. Interestingly, I think it's one of those areas that I, I think if you're, you're like a consistent Darwinian, you must be radically puzzled at this point because it is completely the antithesis of the survival and continuance of your of your your species and and what we are if they if you go down this path so something has to be going on in that so-called um environment (laughs) for them to make a humanity almost turn in on itself and it is such a place at which the doctrine of sin is is clearly you know the the self-destructiveness that we have that isn't a part of our survival it's not merely about our environment but it's something intrinsic to us is on full display anyway uh glenn yeah uh, just I, I gotta make a comment about the darwinian thing if you are a consistent darwinist you <laughs> have to say that the conservatives are the ones who have the evolutionary adaptation because they're the ones who are having the children <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. You, uh, know, there, you know, I mean, it's clear in a Darwinian argument, you got to go there. But where I, w- where I was going to go was a history thing. A lot of people, you know, sort of assume that Greece sort of was universally really open and tolerant of homosexuality, at least among men and so on. Uh, no. Um, the Greeks, up until Alexander the Great, Many Greek cities accepted what we would call pederasty, but they thought homosexual activity among adults was was shameful. And Plato very specifically condemns it. And these kinds of things are covered up or ignored or completely forgotten by people who hold up Greece as this model uh, culture for sexual liberation. Uh, at yeah. least in terms of homosexuality. Yeah, and unfortunately, we have people in the Christian world who just go right along with the misrepresentation uh, and it fail to sort of take advantage of the fact that there is another witness outside Scripture to some of the just basic commonsensical moral realities that we have to deal with in our world. Yeah, and the the other thing to remember is that our modern concept of homosexuality is a very very modern concept. In the past, they were taught they would they thought entirely in terms of behavior, not orientation or anything like that. So that someone who was engaged in homosexual activities would almost certainly be married and have children, right? Because that that was the single driving force for almost all of all cultures and almost all of human history was the family, promoting the family, promoting the family's interests, promoting the family's name, uh, promoting the family's wealth, all of these kinds of things. Very, very family and therefore children-oriented. And the same-sex activity that took place took place as sort of something on the side because everybody was expected to have children. And that was just sort of a, a, a normal course of things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what you see is the way in which um, 
the various issues um, that the church faced in the past. It continues to face, obviously, even though these things change and their definitions do. Um, but he, he has a really neat uh, talk, you know, the siren of vanity. And I think this is, I think, the, the final one where, where this is kind of where the elites kind of uh, are tempted. Um, the siren uh, sings to the wayfarer, the most powerful and subtly dead of, sorry, the most powerful and subtly deadly of the world's songs, that of pride felt in belonging to a superior or exclusive club. And we see this in, in all these you know, references. The group may preen itself on its spiritual, intellectual, cultural, natural, or other pretensions. We may be the Pharisees versus the rabble, the Greeks versus the barbarians, you know, whatever, whatever group it is. Ambition to get into or move up in such a group um, becomes a temptation. And I see this especially with the younger people who who, who grow up in evangelical churches, probably thinly discipled, but, you know, enough to, to at one point embrace the Christian faith. They go to regular high school, and it's cool now to be in one particular elite group or one pride group or identity group that is being celebrated each month, which is, they, these things are purposeful. They're to create the, the popular attraction to draw especially the young into them. And it becomes a lure. And then the church goes along with it, too. Well, we don't want to be those, you know, those uh, uncool people over there. And we've talked about this enough. But uh, this, again, um, is where uh, the siren, the siren's malediction is cursed are the poor in spirit for theirs is not the kingdom of this world. But the wayfarer who counters the siren on this road is reminded to humble himself as a little child and take to and to take the lowest place at the feast, Luke 10, 11. And again, it's the contrast of language here, but, but there, there's a way in which that virtue of humility completely on the one hand subverts the pride, but it also cre- cultivates the stability in the wayfarer not to be moved, shaken, directed, and guided by that temptation, which I think is well needed right now. <laughs> Yeah, I think there are a couple of things to bring that come to mind at this point, and it has to do with certain advantages that one can can enjoy in sort of strange from strange for strange reasons, I guess. For example, um, many many people who maybe have a background in elite culture or elite cultures, maybe uh, they grew up in a place or had some part of their childhood in a place that was considered the place to be, they, they actually can um, have a, a kind of, uh, I, I guess, uh, immunity to this particular problem that you're talking about. So like if, if you've grown up in a, set, in a setting where you're surrounded by all of this, uh, you know, st- all these status symbols and, uh, you're maybe part of a world that everybody considers great, but you also know that it's hollow and and full of despair, and the people that live in it are really not praiseworthy at all, but are just really messed up. When you <laughs> when you when you when you have that in your background, you come out of that, then you're pretty much inoculated to that yeah. particular lie. Um, yeah, and you can you know, be a dispeller of myths when you, yeah. 
you know, uh, encounter people. Another thing, and this is at the other extreme, this is kind of weird. Um, if you've really been poor, I mean, really poor, uh, where you've been like a, you know, a word of the state or anything like that, you've pretty much been, uh, you know, in a spot that's as bad as it could get. And you'd like, well, been there, survived. <laughs> I can go back. <laughs> There's nothing really I'm afraid of that when it comes to that. Now, maybe, maybe there are certain things you've come to enjoy and you'd, you'd hate to lose. Yeah. And I get that. But you, you know that it's not as maybe awful as maybe people think it would be to be in that place. And yeah. maybe there are even some fond memories you have of those days. So, yeah. you know, it's, 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 uh, odd. I think some, I call them the up and outers and the down and outers, the up and outers yeah. are what I described at, at the start and the down and outers are what I described at the, at the, yeah. other. sometimes those folks at the furthest extremes have an advantage yeah, uh, because of the ways that their experiences and their lives, uh, particularly as, as young people give them an inoculation. Yeah, we should, we should probably uh, bring this to an end. Is anything else you want to say, Tom? No, I think it, I think it's a great uh it's a great it's not a long article, but he covers a lot of things in a in a very uh interesting way. Um and he retrieves a lot of things that I think need retrieving. Um and and there's a lot to build on from this. I, I myself got a few a few ideas just for something I'm the book I'm working on now to to kind of bring this stuff into tangible places where the church and we as Christians confront things and the the hope the virtue of hope in particular the way in which our transcendental vision grounded in the you know the the ability to commune with the living God in Christ um, is not something the theology is not something to bracket out of 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 the vision it's something to take hold of every dimension of it. And uh, this is how we redefine our anthropology, who we are as, as Christians and how we live in the world. And I think that was a big take from it. Well, that's great stuff. Well, anyway, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of the Theology Podcast. And we uh, want to uh, say uh, a, a special thank you to a donor that just this week uh, gave a very large gift to the podcast. It was unsolicited just kind of came out of the blue at a good moment. And people do that every once in a while. And we really, really are glad for that. And um, anyway, uh, this is a nice kind of segue to talk about the Patreon effort that we've gotten off the ground. So with Patreon, if you're unfamiliar with how that works, uh, if you have an interest in, say, a particular person's work or institution's work, you can make a pledge, a monthly pledge through Patreon, and then the, those pledges go to support the work that uh, that particular institution or individual is engaged in. And, that, and that's what we're doing here. We're setting up a Patreon page for people who'd like to do that with us. Now, one of the things uh, with Patreon is you, give, you have an opportunity to, to enjoy certain perks if you become uh, a, a patron of uh, the podcast. And so we've talked a little bit about what those things could be. I mean, there is obviously merchandise and that's one thing, but we've also talked about maybe making it, uh, it possible for people to uh, actually listen in on uh, a, sh a show as it's being uh, recorded. As people listen in on shows as they're being recorded, they could ask questions uh, and we could at the end of the show respond to those questions uh, spend a little time with the people who are listening in. 
And there are other things that we've talked about doing uh, related to the show, maybe doing like a, a once a month uh, call in uh, with uh, our patrons so that we can answer any questions that they, they might have. And, and there are other things that we're talking about too. We're, we're just very kind of uh, in the sort of beta stage, as they say, kind of <laughs> figuring out what we want to do and making sure that it'll actually work. So if you have an interest in being a patron of the podcast, you can go to our Patreon page. You can see in our show notes, there's a link and that'll take you to the podcast and you can, you can sign up there. Of course, there are other ways that people give to us. Some people give it to us through, uh, you know, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and that's great. We don't want to rob Peter to pay Paul. If you give to us through the, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, please continue to do so. It's a great uh, network, and if that's the way you want to support us, if you're not already doing so, uh, we encourage you to, to do it there. Uh, and then, as I noted, there's our website there's an ability to make a gift to us through the website and then there's even through your platform i know some people give to us on an ongoing basis through the platforms that they listen to us on anyway uh we do pay the bills and the reason we do pay the bills is because you uh support us and so thank you again for doing that anyway that's enough for now bye-bye bye-bye